Today, we're continuing to work through the gospel according to John in a series called Finding Life in Jesus' Name. And we have been, we started back in July, and we're going to continue on uh, for almost a full year to go through this book. Uh, today we're in John chapter 10, uh, the second half of chapter 10, and we're considering a claim of Jesus that is either crazy or evil, if it isn't true, or is amazing and would in fact be the great hope of the world if it is true. So the claim is that Jesus is not just a human being like you and I, although he is a human being, but that he was also, in fact, the son of God, sanctified and sent from heaven. Well, what does it mean for Jesus to be the son of God? If you grew up in church, as I know some of you uh, have, you may take this aspect of Jesus' identity kind of for granted. Or maybe you've lost sight of just how radical a claim this truly is. Now, if you didn't grow up in church, as I know some of you did, you need to know that this is one of the most significant things that Jesus says about himself. Because, again, if it's not true, the Christian faith falls apart. But if it is true, then it changes everything. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app, please take it and open it to John chapter 10, starting with verse 22. John 10, 22. We're going to read through this passage. We'll unpack it as we go, and then we'll seek to apply it to our lives. John 10, starting with verse 22. Then came the festival of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple courts walking in Solomon's colonnade. The Jews who were there gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Okay, so let's pause here for a little context. So John says... Our passage, this story takes place during the festival of dedication, known today as the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. Now, Hanukkah celebrates the victory of the Jewish people against the Roman Empire, or excuse me, the Greek Empire, about 200 years before the time of Jesus here in our passage. And Hanukkah, the word Hanukkah means dedication in Hebrew. It refers to when this Jewish rebellion, which was led by Judah Maccabee, drove the Greek army out of Jerusalem and allowed them to remove the pagan altar that the Greeks had set up in the temple and dedicate, or really rededicate, the, the temple in Jerusalem for the worship of the one true God, the God of Israel. And so Hanukkah, to this day, is celebrated for eight days with the lighting of the menorah and other traditions you might have heard about. And I really could not have planned it this way, but uh, 
just as Jesus was all those years ago, we today are actually in the middle of the Jewish celebration of Hanukkah. Happy Hanukkah. Okay, isn't that amazing? Sometimes I'm better prepared than I think I am. Anyways, this, this is the setting of our story. So there in the temple courts in Jerusalem during Hanukkah, so it was then and there when the people, the Jewish people, maybe including some of the Pharisees who were with us earlier in chapter 10, uh, confronted Jesus about whether or not he was the Messiah. So back at the end of October, when we were working in John chapter 7, we considered the claim that Jesus was and is the Messiah, or the chosen one, promised by God in the Old Testament scriptures. And back then in October, uh, and really through this whole middle section of John's gospel, we see that people are divided over this claim. Some people believe in Jesus, and they believe that he is the Messiah that God promised to send, and others do not. Some recognize the signs that he was doing as miracles of God, while others reject these signs thinking that there's some sort of trick or even the works of Satan. So since we already covered the, this, I won't spend a lot of time today on what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. Uh, if you'd like, you can always go back and watch or listen to that sermon online if you'd like. But for now, with what seems to me, and I could be wrong here, but it seems to be a tone of exasperation <laughs> The people in the temple at that day asked Jesus to tell us plainly, be clear, Jesus, okay? Are you or are you not the Messiah? Well, Jesus, I think, seems to match their energy a little bit by responding, I did tell you, but you did not believe. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me, but you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Sheep? If you, if you missed the sermon last week, you might have that question. What? Okay. Last week, we considered two I am statements of Jesus. First, I, his claim, I am the gate or the entry point into the flock of God. Okay, flock, that's where we get the sheep. And the second I am statement of Jesus saying, I am the good shepherd. So not only is Jesus the way in to the flock of God, but he is in there too. And he is watching over us as the good shepherd. Now, Jesus said then, and here again, that his sheep listen to his voice. He knows them and they follow him. But here, Jesus makes it clear that the people who are pressing him on whether or not he is the Jewish Messiah, the, they are not asking this in good faith. They're not seeking actual information about Jesus. They don't believe him. They don't believe the signs that he has done either. But for those who have come into the flock of God through faith in Jesus, the Good Shepherd, he promises something that no other religious or political leader could promise. For his sheep, Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Now, is this pointing ahead to John chapter 11 and the final, the seventh sign of raising his friend Lazarus from the dead? 
perhaps. But Jesus says, for his sheep, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, sometimes I think I grow a little numb to the amazing nature of Jesus and his teaching and his claims. Sometimes I hear that and I go, oh yeah, isn't that nice? Isn't that nice of Jesus to say, no one can snatch you out of my hand? Well, yeah, I guess it's nice, but it's wild. How could he say something like this? How could he promise this? He's promising life beyond death. He's promising that nothing and no one can snatch you from his hand. Now, I wish that I could make such a promise for the people that I love. I I wish that I could make this promise for you, but I can't. I do not have the authority to make such a promise, and neither do you. Neither does anybody, except for God. It doesn't matter how much power or money or fame or influence that you have. No one can promise eternal life. So how can Jesus make such a promise? How is it that he has the power, that he has the authority to unconditionally guarantee eternal and abundant life? Well, let's continue, shall we? Maybe he'll describe this. Verse 29. My father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand. I and the father are one. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Let's pause one more time, okay? What? All right. So the reason that Jesus can make such an impossible claim for the rest of us mere mortals is that Jesus is no mere mortal. He says that his Father, that is God the Father in heaven, the creator of the heavens and the earth, the Father has the authority to do such a thing, to guarantee the safety and security of us, safe in Jesus' hand. But Jesus doesn't say that he'll pray for his people to have life and his father will hopefully listen. He says that he and the father are one. Now for the Jews, this was considered blasphemy because of the law of God, of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other God before me. In Jewish thought, there was only one God, every other God out there available for your perusal, okay, and worship, they were not real. They were idols. They were false. They were dead. They couldn't do what the people were hoping them to do. And so the Jewish people responded to Jesus' claim to be one with the Father by picking up stones to stone him to death because they were responding to blasphemy. They understood what he was claiming, In other words, they got it. Back in chapter 5, we saw a similar interaction happen where John writes, for this reason they tried all the more to kill him 
Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling him God his own father, making himself equal with God. So both there and here, Jesus then sought to reason with his opponents. Before the mob could kill him, Jesus said, wait, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? He's trying to get them to think. And it was a smart move because it forced the mob to consider the miraculous signs that at least some of them had seen, but probably all of them had at least heard about. And they responded, we're not stoning you for that. Feeding the 5,000, walking on water, things like that. But because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Now, in a sense, this is a right response to this type of claim. But if Jesus was who he claimed to be, he would not only have the authority to give his people eternal life, he would also have the authority to call down legions of angels from heaven and wipe out every enemy, every doubter, anyone who hadn't given him the full glory and honor and praise that he deserves. He could have. But that's not who Jesus is. That is not who God is. The Lord is the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. When Moses wanted to see the glory of God, the Lord passed by him in such a way that he preserved Moses' life, and that's what he told him. This is who I am. So instead of blasting these opponents, what does Jesus do? Look back at verse 34. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? If he called them God's to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be set aside... What about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father." Again, they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. Then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. There he stayed, and many people came to him. They said, though John never performed a sign, all that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. This is God's word. So Jesus responds to this mob by throwing them a tough theological question. <laughs> hey, everyone, before you kill me, quick question. How do you understand Psalm 82? Isn't that what you would have done? Okay, what is happening? Well, here, Jesus refers to a notoriously difficult passage to interpret that seems to suggest that there are other beings besides the one true God who might be called God's. What? The theory for who is being referred to in Psalm 82 
while the theories are many, they include that this is a reference to false gods, perhaps idols, as I mentioned already, or perhaps fallen angels, a part of the spiritual realm, uh, or perhaps Israel in some way. But the point is that there's a verse which refers to some people or things or something as gods and sons of the Most High. And Jesus specifically introduces this in relation to his unique identity and relationship with God the Father in heaven as the Son of God. So, okay, maybe what's the problem with Jesus claiming to be God's Son? If there's this psalm that makes some sort of reference to it, why are you upset with me, mob? <laughs> okay, but then Jesus goes even further, saying that the Father in heaven is in him and he is in the Father, a statement that implies the absolute union of the two. I mean, utter unity. And he says that the Father in heaven set him apart or literally sanctified him and sent him into the world. Now this points, again, all these things point to the utterly unique identity of Jesus. There is nobody like him because no one else can claim this for themselves. To be sanctified or to be made holy means to be set apart or consecrated for God and for the purposes of God. So as an example of this, in the Old Testament, everything related to the ministry of the priesthood, the priests in the tabernacle and then later in the temple, in other words, the service of worship, everything there had to be sanctified or consecrated, set apart, because all of the stuff used in worship was for, it was supposed to be set apart for the Lord and for worship of the Lord. These articles, the bowls, the silverware, different things that were used in this, in this uh, temple worship, these were not meant to be common articles. These were to be special, and they were made for a special purpose. Now here, Jesus says that he was sanctified. Now that doesn't mean that he needed to be perfected. He was perfect in heaven. But he here, this refers more to his special purpose, being set apart. That is, set apart to come into the world and to initiate the rescue mission that God had promised in generations past to finally deal with the, the problem under all the other problems of the world. That is the problem of the power of sin and the consequence of sin, which is death. But again, Jesus points to the works that he had been doing, these miraculous signs, um, by the way, he refers to them as the works of God, but he refers to these works as a way to authenticate his words, his message, which reveals his true identity and unique identity as the Son of God. Now, as usual, Jesus doesn't walk anything back. <laughs> he only doubles down yet again. We've seen that repeatedly throughout John's gospel. Don't believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even if you don't believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. 
So this mob there in the busy temple courts during Hanukkah is not convinced by this. They still want to kill him. They try to seize him, but it's not yet his hour. His hour has not yet come, and so he is able to slip away somehow. But there are some who do believe. There are some of the sheep of his flock, the flock of the good shepherd who listen to his voice and are known by him and follow him there on the other side of the Jordan River. They heard the testimony of John the Baptist. They believed the signs. And chapter 10 ends with this hopeful statement, and in that place, many believed in Jesus. Now this reminds us of John chapter six where Peter says, we have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Well, what does this mean for us today? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Son of God? Well, as I said, if this is not true, for example, if Jesus was lying or if John fabricated this whole gospel account of Jesus, or, as some people believe today, passages like this were inserted later by the church, maybe hundreds of years later, then really the whole Christian faith falls apart. It doesn't make sense. Jesus would not have the authority to do what he promises to do here. He would not have the authority to claim to be God. He would not have the authority to lay down his life and then take it back up again as he promised to do. He would not have the authority to save anyone from sin and death. He would not have the authority to offer eternal life, abundant life, life to the full. He would be a total fraud. But beyond this, none of the New Testament would make any sense. In fact, the birth and the rise of the Christian church after the death of Jesus would make no sense whatsoever if he wasn't who he claimed to be. But if it is true, if Jesus is the Son of God, if Jesus is equal with the Father in heaven, if if he has eternally existed and came into the world at his birth, which we will celebrate here in a few weeks at Christmas, if, if he came into the world and wasn't just born like I was or you were, then it changes everything. If Jesus was set apart by his Father and sent from heaven to seek and to save the lost, then he could bring the salvation that he promises here. He could be the rescuer and the redeemer that the world needed He would have the authority to command and the authority to enforce his commandments. In other words, he would be totally unique. There is no one like him. There is no one like Jesus. And so, if this is true, and to be a Christian means you believe that this is true, then... How does this apply to our life? It changes everything. You are no longer the highest authority over your life. There is one higher. And there is 
also no longer just your agenda or just your opinions or just your preferences that guides your life. There is one higher. And you are no longer hopeless without hope and without God in the world because there is one who is risen and therefore he is higher. We are no longer stumbling through the dark, trying to find our way through a world of darkness because there is one who is higher, who is the light of the world. We are no longer wandering sheep off astray, lost in danger because there is one who is higher, who is our good shepherd. We are no longer alone because he has promised to be with us. He says, I know you. I know your name. And I'm calling you. I'm with you. I'm protecting and guiding you. This changes everything. Because if Jesus is the son of God sent from heaven, he could do what he promised he would do. And we can count on him. So I want to end today with an invitation to you. Would you come to him? The people who believed in him went out to visit him in this day. They they went out. They left the city. They made a journey. They had to cross the Jordan River and find Jesus. Would you come to him? He is the Son of God. He is the highest one. He is united, one with the Father. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is the one who will save. Would you come to him? If he was willing to come for you, would you be willing to go to him? Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would see you with eyes of faith, open wide, and see you clearly for who you claim to be. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would recognize your authority over our lives as the Son of God. I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would look to you and trust your promises to save. Trust your promise that no one can snatch us from your hands because you are the Son of God. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would remember and we would believe and we would, that we would be filled with your love at the offer to join in your family and be adopted into the family where you are the true son. Lord Jesus, I pray that we would look to you, that we would go to you, that we would listen to your voice and follow you because you are the son, beloved of the father, eternally existing, and reigning from heaven even today. Lord Jesus, would you give us your spirit? Would you give us the faith to believe? Would you help us, Lord, even now, to come to you? It's in your powerful and divine name that we pray, Jesus. Amen.